This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Welcome back to the show. The outcry involving the selection of The Last Time I Saw Paris as the Academy Award winner for Best Song of 1941 caused a small change in the wording of rules involving the eligibility of songs for the prestigious award. Now, the songs had to be composed specifically for use in a motion picture, and not one that had been previously recorded as a standalone song, as The Last Time I Saw Paris was. So now, we can call the category Original Song, even though the Academy wasn't yet doing that. And we'll see how much emphasis on originality and relevance to the movie each song has. Even though the debate over whether a nominated song is original might be over for the moment, there was a controversy regarding one of this year's nominees that remains one of the Academy's biggest unsolved mysteries. Eighty years down the road, the Academy is still stumped to figure out how one song found its way onto the official list of nominees for original song. And as we learn more about this and other songs, just a quick warning that major plot details are going to be revealed in this episode. The song that caused a stir is called Pigfoot Pete. If you look at the official list of nominees for the 1942 awards on the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences website, it mentions that Pigfoot Pete comes from the Universal Pictures musical Hell's a Poppin', which was released in 1942. The mystery over this song's nomination comes from the fact that Pigfoot Pete does not appear in Hell's a Poppin', but rather in the movie Keep Em Flyin', which was also produced and distributed by Universal Pictures, but in 1941, not 1942. Footnotes about Pigfoot Pete indicate that the song's nomination was the fault of the Academy, but you'll remember that it's the studios that submit the songs for an automatic nomination. The mystery shouldn't be focused on how the Academy allowed this song to be nominated, though that is a question that needs answering, but rather, what happened at Universal Studios to cause the mix-up? and was it intentional? Keep Em Flying was the second film starring the comedy duo of Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Their first film was Buck Privates, also released in 1941. Buck Privates had a song nominated for an Academy Award, the popular Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company B by Hugh Prince and Don Ray. Under normal circumstances, Pickfoot Pete would have needed to compete with Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy for the privilege to be Universal's nominee for 1941. I've spoken with archivists at Universal, and no one is certain how Pickfoot Pete managed to sneak in as a nominee or be listed as a song from Hell's a Poppin'. A bunch of theories arose, though. A big one supposes that there was a clerical error and someone in the music department at Universal incorrectly listed Pigfoot Pete as a song in Hell's a Poppin' instead of Keep Em Flyin'. To make matters even more confusing for everyone trying to solve the mystery, all of the original songs in Keep Em Flying and Hell's a Poppin' were written by Don Ray and Gene DePaul. Even better, both films feature actress Martha Ray, who performs Pigfoot Pete. 
So you can imagine the confusion of whomever was responsible for cataloging the songs for both films, which were pretty much filmed at almost the same time and released almost at the same time. Keep Em Flying was released in Los Angeles in December 1941, so all of its songs should have been submitted for consideration for 1941 awards. Hell's a Poppin' was released in New York and other cities at the same time, but Universal did not release it in Los Angeles until January 1942. The Academy Awards rules state that a film is eligible for awards after it has been shown in Los Angeles theaters. So Hell's a Poppin' and its songs got a chance to compete in 1942 instead of 1941. Now, there are some decent songs in Hell's a Poppin', including the title song as well as Heaven for Two. Which brings up a theory that I have about this controversy. Perhaps those who were responsible for voting for Universal's best song of 1942 were told that Keep Em Flying was a 1942 release, and all of the songs from that film were listed, along with all of the songs from Hell's a Poppin' and other Universal musicals from 1942. When those in the music department picked Pigfoot Pete as the nominee, someone figured out that the song wasn't really eligible, crossed their fingers, and submitted the song to the Academy with it being associated with the film Hell's a Poppin'. At the time, the members of the Academy's music branch weren't tasked with vetting all of the song nominees. The trust was placed on the studios that they would follow the rules. The music branch was only responsible for making sure all of the scores submitted were put in the right categories, as well as handling final voting for the films that would receive the Academy Award for Best Musical Score and Best Drama or Comedy Score. I like that theory just as much as the theory about a clerical error. But no matter what happened, Pigfoot Pete remains an Academy Award nominee for the year 1942 since the Academy has not removed it from the list. As it appears in Keep Em Flying, Pigfoot Pete is a standalone song, able to be completely removed from the film without missing a beat. The song is very reminiscent of Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, both in style and lyrics. The Pete in the title is a talented piano player who plays the fast-paced boogie-woogie music for a mug of beer and pickled pig's feet. As I mentioned earlier, it's performed by Martha Ray with assistance from the singing group The Six Hits. They say that there's a guy they call Bigfoot Pete. He plays piano by ear. Turn and plays all night for pigs, feet, and beer. He's murdered on the 88. He's the guy that brought the boogie woogie up to date. He's got a cannon in his left hand and a rifle in his right. He's just a double barrel. Yeah, and a shoot the to you at a fighting range. He's just a solid whiz. He's Bigfoot Pete, a boogie woogie's elite. His hands are just as big as Virginia hands. And when they go to work at night, bathroom ramps. And when he plays on that box, the joint rocks. Until your beat to your socks, wherever boogie is part of the plan. You find a bigger foot and feed the boogie woogie man. Way out in Kansas City on 1-2 Street. They say that there's a guy they call Bigfoot Pete. He plays piano. Who the boogie woogie up to date. His hands are just as big as what 
punch in your hands. And when they go to work, they're like bathroom rams. And when he plays on that box, the joint rocks. Until your feet, till your socks, whatever boogie is part of the plan. Bigfoot Pete, the boogie will get man. Bigfoot Pete, the boogie will get man. They call it Bigfoot. After finishing up work on this, Hell's a Poppin' and another Abbott and Costello film named Ride'em Cowboy, lyricist Don Ray enlisted in the Army in 1942 and returned to Hollywood after the war to continue writing music for various movie genres from animation to heavy dramas. As for his composer Gene DePaul, he's going to have bigger success 12 years later with the original film musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. The other nine songs nominated for Best Original Song of 1942 have little to no controversy surrounding them, but many of them have great stories behind their creations. Let's go ahead and listen to them in alphabetical order, starting with the title song from the drama Always In My Heart. The title song is the only original composition written for the movie, and the music by Cuban-born Ernesto Lecuona is a major theme in the underscore. The movie stars Walter Houston as a man who earns parole after 13 years in prison. He's divorced his wife and told her to find love. His children have been told that he's dead, and when he leaves prison, he travels back home to weave his way into his family's life. We're introduced to Houston's character, Mac, as he's leading an orchestra prison. Yes, a prison orchestra made of at least 50 talented musicians, playing the instrumental version of Always In My Heart, which Mac wrote. In reality, it was Kim Gannon who wrote the lyrics for Always In My Heart, and we hear them 46 minutes into the film when Mac's daughter Vicky visits him at the house where he is staying. He tells her about the song he wrote, and she convinces him to perform it so she can learn it. Once you hear the lyrics, it's obvious that Mac wrote it while thinking of his family. You are always in my heart Even though you're far away I can hear the music of the song of love I sang with you 
when the skies above are gray. I remember that you care, and then and there the sun breaks through. Just before I go to sleep, there's a rendezvous I keep. And the dream I always meet helps me forget we're far apart. I don't know exactly when, dear, but I'm sure we'll meet again here. And my darling, too. The music is heard by a fisherman on the nearby wharf who picks up a harmonica and takes his turn at it, making it romantic at first, then a bit comical.
Vicky sings the song in bits and pieces throughout the film, then performs it with Mac on the piano and about 30 harmonica players during a radio broadcast in the film's final scene after Mac's secret is revealed and everyone is back together. Now it appears that the wish for the singer to be back with loved ones has come true. Vicky is played by Gloria Warren, a trained soprano making her film debut after signing a seven-year deal with Warner Brothers. Her talent was so admired that the role of Vicky was written for just for her. Warren only appeared in five movies, retiring from acting in 1947 after marrying businessman Peter Gold. Lyricist Kim Gannon, born James Kimball Gannon, intended on a law career before he found moderate success writing the song For Tonight in 1939. Always in My Heart was his first movie song, starting a career in films that would connect him with composers Jewel Stein, Max Steiner, and Walter Kent. Kent had composed the song White Cliffs of Dover in 1941 as a wartime tribute to Great Britain. After working on Always in My Heart, Gannon teamed up with Kent for the song I'll Be Home for Christmas in 1943 as a tribute for the soldiers fighting overseas in World War II. As for Ernesto Lecuona, he didn't do much more work in Hollywood, but he would translate Gannon's lyrics into Spanish and make Always in My Heart a popular song in Latin countries. After Lecuona's death in 1963, exactly a week after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the song took on another life. Placido Domingo released an album of Lecuona's compositions, and Siempre en Mi Corazón was a top 10 hit on the Latin music charts. After the hubbub surrounding The Last Time I Saw Paris, 
Jerome Kerm's nominated song for 1942 definitely fit the requirements to be one of the ten singled out for best original song. Dearly Beloved is one of the six songs he composed with lyricist Johnny Mercer for the film You Were Never Lovelier. Both of them had written songs before for Fred Astaire, though they had done their work in separate films, so this assignment would be an easy collaboration for them. And for Mercer, it was a chance to meet Kern, whom he had regarded as an idol when he started working in Hollywood. It's the second and final film teaming Fred Astaire with Rita Hayworth, and you can see here that the two were finding their footing as acting and dancing partners. Astaire has said that Hayworth was a major inspiration for the dances he created for them, instead of the other way around for his nine films with Ginger Rogers. But the formula for You Were Never Lovelier is pretty much trademark Astaire. He and the female lead don't like each other at the beginning of the film, then they fall in and out of love with each other before the big celebratory happy ending dance. Astaire's character, Bob, and Hayworth's character, Maria, meet at the wedding of Maria's older sister. Bob is hired to sing at the wedding reception, and Dearly Beloved accurately describes how a newlywed couple would feel about each other as they look ahead to a new life together. Tell me that it's true Tell me you agree I was meant for you You were meant for me Dearly beloved How clearly I see Somewhere in heaven You were fashioned for me Angel eyes Knew you Angel voices led me to you Nothing could save me Fate gave me a sign I know that I'll be yours Come shower or shine So I say Merely Dearly beloved be mine You were meant for me I was meant for you Tell me you agree Tell me that it's true Though Hayworth had a good singing voice, she was dubbed by Nan Wynn for this and other songs in You Were Never Lovelier. As for the song itself, the melody isn't as memorable as Kern's first Oscar-winning song, The Way You Look Tonight, which was a big hit for Astaire, but the song does have some meaning to the movie. As Bob sings, Maria looks on, though at this point in the film she is very cold to the idea of marriage. In fact, Bob describes her heart as being cold as the inside of a refrigerator. To change his daughter's thoughts on love, Maria's father writes fake love letters from a secret admirer attached to orchids and has them delivered every day at 5 p.m. to Maria. After about a week, Maria starts to fall in love with this mysterious stranger and sings Dearly Beloved in her bedroom as a sign that her heart might actually be thawing. 
that I'll be yours sunshine <laughs> or shine. So I say merely, dearly beloved, be The popular team of Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney were back on the movie screen for Babes on Broadway, another let's-put-on-a-show musical formula that worked well for them in Babes in Arms and Strike Up the Band. The songs in Babes on Broadway came from a mixture of original songs and pre-existing tunes, with the original songs containing music by Burton Lane. Academy Award winner Yip Harburg, who wrote the lyrics for Judy Garland in Over the Rainbow, helped Lane write many of the songs in Babes on Broadway, as did producer Arthur Freed's brother, Ralph. It was Ralph Freed who wrote the words for the film's Academy Award-nominated song, How About You? Because the film is directed by legendary choreographer Busby Berkeley, every song in the movie has a dance component to it, and that is definitely true for How About You? You might have heard this song before, as it has become a classic used in many movies since 1942, but rarely do those movies follow up the song with a lengthy dance. In Babes on Broadway, the song comes when Rooney's character, Tommy, escorts Garland's character, Penny, to her home after they meet in a diner. After convincing her that she has a great singing voice, Tommy persuades Penny to sing for him. So she goes to the piano and performs How About You, in which she tries to find out if the two are compatible. She sings about some of the things she likes, such as New York City in June, potato chips, and motor trips. Standing next to her, Tommy nods in agreement every time she sings the title of the song. After the first part of the song is done, it becomes a duet where they trade lines and form a stronger connection that is cemented by a dance routine that uses various parts of the apartment, including the radiator, to communicate with the downstairs neighbor. <laughs> when a girl meets boy, life can be a joy, but the note they end on will depend on little pleasures they will share, so let us compare. Get my fill, 
Supper at the Ritz. How about you? I love to dream of fame. Maybe I'll shine. I'd love to see your name right beside mine. I can see we're in harmony. Looks like we both agree on what to do. And I like it. How I've ignited the spark within you. Let me continue to make it burn. With you, I will be like a trilby, so let's not dally. Come on, Spengali, I've lots to learn. When you're a rising star, exercising daily. For example, just a sample. Bend and touch the floor 50 times or more. <laughs> a fine star to be a burn hard. A dictionary's necessary, but not for talking. It's used for walking the zig-filled way. Is this okay? That's the trick. You're catching on quickly. Should I take a bow? Oh, uh, let me show you how. Just my partner's on the stage. Yeah. If you can use a partner, I'm the right Thank you. 
Babes on Broadway was not as big a success as the previous Garland Rooney musicals, earning $2.3 million. It came as no surprise then that the higher-ups at MGM decided that the partnership needed to end with Girl Crazy, which was already in production for a 1943 release. Girl Crazy doesn't contain any original songs, using the George and Ira Gershwin songs featured in the 1930 Broadway musical. Some of those major songs are now major classics. Embraceable You, I Got Rhythm, But Not For Me. If Girl Crazy was to be the final collaboration between Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney, at least they made these Gershwin songs more popular to the public. Moving on to the next nominated song, which is It Seems I Heard That Song Before from the movie Youth on Parade. It gave composer Jewel Stein his second Academy Award nomination after writing Who Am I back in 1940. His lyricist for the six songs in Youth on Parade was Sammy Kahn, who had just turned 28 when he began the first year of a long collaboration with Stein, who was 36 years old. Kahn had not been in Hollywood long, and though he grew up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and learned to play music as a child, he did not work on New York City's Tin Pan Alley as many aspiring writers did at the time. He worked odd jobs while trying to hone his craft, then met up with Saul Chaplin and the two wrote material for the Warner Brothers cartoon and live-action short films in the 1930s. Kahn and Chaplin moved to Hollywood in the early 1940s and had a lackluster start at Columbia Pictures. Kahn was recruited to work on songs with Stein for the Republic Pictures film Youth on Parade. According to Kahn's memoirs, the first song Stein and Kahn wrote was It Seems I Heard That Song Before, a title that came to Kahn after he asked Stein to play the song's melody numerous times, but slower each time. Kahn said of his process, quote, I don't write a song as much as the song writes me, end quote. Youth on Parade centers on a fictional university where a carefully designed academic program is upended by the students, who create a fictional student as the school's smartest co-ed. In an attempt to prove the program is flawed, the students find an obnoxious wannabe Broadway actress to pose as Patty Flynn, the genius, for a day. Patty does convince the program's coordinator, a psychology professor named Jerry, to loosen up and let the students have fun once in a while. That includes dating, and the prettiest girl at the school, Sally, is somehow unable to find a suitable mate of her age. So Patty hooks her up with Jerry, and they slowly fall in love. That romance is cemented on their first date at a club where music is playing on the jukebox. Sally says the music is familiar to her, and she begins singing It Seems I Heard That Song Before. The melody inspires her to remember a dream of being in love, and words like forevermore that only bring deeper feelings of attraction to Jerry. On the surface, at least for the first 90 seconds, this is just another typical love song, written in the big band jazz style. After Sally finishes the song, we get a minute-long dance routine by two students that is stopped suddenly when the song ends. After putting another nickel in the jukebox, the song takes a comedic turn as the school's band pretends to play instruments while we get more of Stein's melody. It seems to me I've heard that song before. It's from an old
Sally is played by Martha O'Driscoll, but all of her singing in the movie was dubbed by Margaret Whiting, who was the daughter of the late Academy Award-nominated composer Richard Whiting. As far as the song goes, one could argue that it's not the best of the film. Take the finale, for instance, which features the song You Gotta Study, Buddy, and is much more integral to the film. The reason why the students wanted to topple Jerry's academic program was their apathy toward school at a time when other young people were off fighting in World War II. This immediately shifts the film from fictional comedy into a dramatic reality as Jerry gives a lengthy speech about the need for the students to continue at school so the country would have smart people to build the bombs that the soldiers are dropping. As a response, the students stage, you got to study buddy, as a message to their peers who are staying at home, which likely resonated with the young people watching the movie. But the music department at Republic Pictures was most likely made of stuffy old men, not college-age academics, so they chose It Seems I Heard That Song Before as its Academy Award submission. Jules Stein had other songs in contention from another Republic film called Cowboy Serenade. That was Gene Autry's big film release of 1942, though he did not write any of the songs he performed this time around. Besides the title song, which Jules Stein did not write, there was a love song called Nobody Knows that Autry made into a modest hit that year. But even Gene Autry's Golden Pipes couldn't convince voters at Republic Pictures to pick his songs over those in Youth on Parade. And that was the first of a long partnership that Jules Stein and Sammy Kahn would enjoy. But according to Kahn's memoirs, Stein was not keen on working with Kahn after Youth on Parade until the recording of It Seems I Heard That Song Before became a big seller. The two would broker a five-picture deal at Columbia, bringing Kahn back to where he had his rough Hollywood start. One year after his successful screen debut in Sun Valley Serenade, Glenn Miller brought his orchestra back for one more movie for 20th Century Fox. Also coming back were songwriters Harry Warren and Mac Gordon, who wrote the hit songs for Sun Valley Serenade. Orchestra Wives might seem a bit more dramatic in tone, but like Sun Valley Serenade, it deals with a member of the band caught in a love triangle. This time, George Montgomery plays trumpet player Bill, who marries one of his fans, Connie, played by Ann Rutherford. The other woman is Janie, played by Lynn Berry, who lost out on the leading man in Sun Valley Serenade and loses out on Bill here. After Connie figures out that Janie is still carrying a torch for Bill, Connie calls off their brief marriage. It causes the band to also separate briefly before coming back for a rousing finale that showcases the band's talents with swing music. The song they perform is the Academy Award-nominated I've Got a Gal in Kalamazoo. And if you've seen the performance in the film, it has a strong similarity to Chattanooga Choo Choo, the nominated song from Sun Valley Serenade just a year earlier. There's a lengthy instrumental introduction by Glenn Miller's band, followed by Tex Beneke leading several singers on the vocal, just as he did on Chattanooga Choo Choo. At the end, as it was in Chattanooga Choo Choo, the Nicholas Brothers appear once again for a spectacular dance routine. Thank you. 
She's a toast of Kalamazoo. Zoo, 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 zoo. Yeah. 
have gone by, my, my, how she grew. Man, did she grew. I liked her looks when I carried her books in Kalamazoo, zoo, 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 zoo. I'm gonna send a wire, hopping on a flyer, leaving today. Am I dreaming? I can hear screaming. Hiya, Mr. Jackson. Everything's okay. A-L-A-M-A-C-O. Oh, what a gal, a real pipperoo. She's a fine chick. I'm gonna make my bid for the Ferkel face kid. I'm hurrying to. Going to Michigan to see the sweetest gal in Kalamazoo. song was recorded and sold to the public, it immediately topped the sales charts through the summer of 1942, and it made the city of Kalamazoo, Michigan a minor tourist spot. The B-side of the I've Got a Gal in Kalamazoo record contained another song from Orchestra Wives, a song that has become immensely popular throughout the years. Come along 
Yes, the song At Last made its debut in Orchestra Wives as the song that causes the female lead to fall in love with the band's trumpet player. It sounds different from the arrangement you might be used to hearing, and that's because Etta James took the song and almost completely changed it from a jazz standard to a rhythm and blues tempo in 1960. When I said At Last made its debut here in Orchestra Wives, well, that's almost true. Harry Warren and Mac Gordon wrote At Last for use in Sun Valley Serenade the year before, but studio executives thought there were too many songs in that film and asked Warren and Gordon to save it for the next picture. But an instrumental version of At Last remained in Sun Valley Serenade during the finale because Sonia Henney had already choreographed her routine to the music. At Last is used as a musical theme for the lead characters in Orchestra Wives, and one might think that Warren and Gordon would put it up for a top consideration as the original song submission for the Academy Awards. But after the hubbub surrounding the last time I saw Paris last year, it was most likely decided that At Last should not be eligible for the 1942 award because the instrumental version had been used in a movie the previous year. So don't be too upset that one of the great American songs missed out on an Academy Award nomination. It was probably the right thing to do. Glenn Miller's contributions to Sun Valley Serenade and Orchestra Wives went a long way toward making those films successful and helped make his orchestra in high demand. Miller would not appear in another movie after Orchestra Wives, setting aside film aspirations to serve in the Army as a captain. His orchestra disbanded with his entry into the military in 1942, and Miller would serve as conductor of various military bands at home and abroad. In December 1944, on his way to Paris from England, the plane carrying Miller and two others disappeared somewhere over the English Channel. The plane's wreckage has never been found, and 40 years later, there are many unfounded theories about the disappearance. Miller left behind a great legacy that, at least on film, can be found in two movies that presented him with the opportunity to present two Academy Award-nominated songs to the public. For the third consecutive year, Walt Disney had an animated film contending for the original song Academy Award. This time, it comes from the classic Bambi, about a young deer who is the wonder of the forest from the day he is born. Walt Disney did not consider Bambi a musical, even though there are four original songs performed by off-screen singers who do not play any of the characters. Walt Disney always wanted as much realism in his animated films as possible, and even though the forest animals do talk, I guess it was deemed too out there for them to sing. But none of the songs feel like they need to be sung by any of the characters, so in this case, the lack of any characters singing in the film fit just fine. Composer Frank Churchill was back on board with Larry Morey for another Disney song score after ushering in the new era of Disney songs in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in 1937. Morey was responsible for more than just writing song lyrics for Bambi. He wrote the screenplay that was based on an Austrian novel as well. The nominated song is first performed over the opening credits. It's called Love is a Song with English actor and singer David Novus leading the chorus. Maury's lyrics are quite ambivalent if you know nothing about the plot. Is the love that Novus sings about romantic love? Or is it about a parent's love for its child, like Baby Mine from Dumbo? After the credits, we understand it's the latter, 
as the song segues to a wordless chorus, singing the melody as we prepare to meet the newborn fawn, Bambi. A song that never ends. Life may be swift and fleeting. Hope may die, yet heart's beautiful music comes each day like the dawn. Love is a song that never ends. One simple theme. of a heavenly choir, love's sweet music flows The song is reprised at the end of the film when adult Bambi looks down from a cliff at the two new fawns his mate has just birthed. The song still has a connection to parental love, but there's romantic love underneath as well.
Another romantic song was performed earlier in the film when Bambi starts to fall for Feline, the young doe he met as a child. It's called Looking for Romance, and while it's a very good song that Donald Novus also sings, it doesn't have the connection that Love is a Song has to the entire film, so Love is a Song was a good choice for an Academy Award nomination. Bambi was released in August 1942, just a few weeks after the American military bombed the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Because Bambi lacked many of the fantasy elements and plotline that would have attracted children and provided a distraction from real-life events, Bambi didn't do very well at the box office. But it soon after was regarded as one of the crowning achievements in the Disney animated canon because it didn't shy away from realism. And I'm not only talking about killing Bambi's mother. Larry Morey would continue to work with the Disney studio after Bambi, but none of them would be animated films. Frank Churchill would not get to enjoy the success of getting two Academy Award nominations for writing Love is a Song and helping Edward Plum write the film score. He committed suicide on May 14, 1942, three months before Bambi had his world premiere. The motive for the suicide remains unclear since Churchill left no note. Well, let's move on to a happier subject with the next nominated song. It's called Pennies for Peppino from the comedy Flying with Music. The movie was produced by Hal Roach Studios, which had made the decision to make what they called streamliner features that ran 40 to 50 minutes and were almost all comedies. They were usually the B-movie in a double feature and cost, well, pennies to make. In the case of the 46-minute long Flying with Music, the plot involves a man who thinks two men are after him for missed alimony payments. He disguises himself as a tour guide for five beautiful women through the Florida Keys, and on the way through the jungle to find a famous singer, the group encounters kids who beg them for money by singing Pennies for Peppino. The child in the title can sing, dance, or do tricks for the low price of a penny.
Not much to say about this song. It comes and goes without much fanfare. Of all the songs nominated in 1942, this is one that definitely could have been cut from the film without it being missed. And to prove how insignificant the song was for the Hal Roach music department, Pennies for Peppino did not get a commercial release, even after it was nominated for the Academy Award. And don't say you're surprised. Another song in the film that was probably considered for the nomination was Rotana, a song that harkens back to the first year of the Academy Award for Best Song, when Carioca and The Continental were nominated. Rotana is a Latin dance that the singer says has an irregular beat and will put the rumba to shame. Edward Ward, Chet Forrest, and Bob Wright earned their second song nominations as a songwriting trio for Pennies for Peppino four years after they wrote the nominated song Always and Always for Joan Crawford in Mannequin. After that, Forrest and Wright were nominated for writing the lyrics to It's a Blue World in 1940. Ward earned nominations for writing the scores for three films in 1941, including All-American Co-Ed, which had a song nominated but not written by him. In addition to earning the song nomination for Flying With Music, Ward's score was nominated for Best Musical Score that year. I say nominated, but it was submitted to the Academy by Hal Roach Studios for automatic insertion as an official nominee. At this point, nomination voting was still not done by members of the music branch. With World War II in full swing, Hal Roach Studios stopped making motion pictures of any kind in summer 1942 to make propaganda films for the military. After the war, the studio shifted to TV production and had some success with the Abbott and Costello show as well as Amos and Andy before going bankrupt in 1959. Another studio in deep financial troubles in 1942 was RKO Pictures. Though they had produced Citizen Kane the year before, a film that is now regarded as the best ever made, RKO was barely making a profit when the calendar rolled around 1942. On the docket was The Pride of the Yankees and Bambi, but RKO only distributed those films and didn't bring in much money from their releases. Gone were those days of big successes from the Astaire and Rogers musicals. Of the movies made by RKO in 1942 was The Mayor of 44th Street, which was not a musical, but featured three songs written by Mort Green and Harry Revel, who each earned their first Academy Award nominations for the song 
There's a breeze on Lake Louise. The song has minor relevance to the movie's plot, and the lyric only takes up a minute of the song. The music plays from a radio at the home of the main character, a talent agent who is under pressure to help a former colleague who has just been released from prison. At his home with him is his former dance partner and current co-worker at the talent agency, who reminisces about the days touring the country and getting paid very little. But the memories are still good, and they talk about them over Revel's music. After the song, the music continues until the scenes end, though the dialogue often overshadows it. Here is the lyric portion of the performance by Anne Shirley. When there's a breeze on Lake Louise, there on a cool in June night, we'll drift away on Lake Louise, watching our dreams reflected in moonlight. We'll be alone on Lake Louise, with only a breeze on Lake Louise. As I mentioned, the song has almost no relevance to the plot, but one of the other songs makes a big mark in its scene. The song is You're Bad For Me, which is sung in a nightclub by a singer who has a troubled past with the man who was released from prison. That man comes to the nightclub, and in the middle of the song, it becomes clear that she is singing directly to the convent about the trouble he causes when he's around. Not only is the song heard in its entirety in the film, but the melody and the lyrics stay with you longer. Revel and Green wrote songs for two other RKO movies in 1942, Bore Jackson and Jill and Sing Your Worries Away. Both films have a connection to The Wizard of Oz, as Ray Bolger, the Scarecrow, plays the lead in Four Jackson and Jill. Bert Lahr, the Cowardly Lion, is in Sing Your Worries Away, as is Buddy Epson, who was initially cast as the Tin Man before withdrawing due to allergic reactions to makeup. The songs in those films don't stand out much, 
so it can't be said that either deserved an Academy Award nomination for their songs. But one has to wonder why the very brief and insignificant There is a Breeze on Lake Louise was voted by the RKO Music Department as the top song of the year and not something like You're Bad for Me. Moving on to one of the most anticipated screen pairings of 1942. It was not Abbott and Costello, but rather Astaire and Crosby for the musical Holiday Inn. Since 1934, the two had been trading off status as the top two movie singers of the year, with Crosby pretty much taking the title in the past two years due to the end of Stair's film relationship with Ginger Rogers. The film was the brainchild of Irving Berlin, who signed a contract with Paramount in 1940 to develop his idea of a Connecticut Inn that is only open during certain holidays. Naturally, Berlin was ready to write a song about each holiday featured in the movie, and that created what we now regard as the best Christmas song ever written, White Christmas. In my 1935 episode, I mentioned that Berlin had written the melody for White Christmas during production of Top Hat, which starred a stare and was directed by Mark Sandrich. Berlin thought it could be used in the next Fred and Ginger movie, and a stare liked the idea. Sandrich was not as thrilled about it, so Berlin decided to put it away for future use. That future came with Holiday Inn, and legend has it that Berlin finished White Christmas while sitting in a warm hotel room at La Quinta Hotel in Southern California. And perhaps the setting helped him to create the ultimate song about nostalgia. Growing up in New York, Berlin had great memories of the Christmas season, even though he was raised Jewish, and while he sat there in California trying to write a Christmas song, the words seemed to pour out of him. The memory of his son's death on Christmas Day, 1928, surely had an impact on the songwriting process. The song is deceptively simple, even though it follows the typical 32-bar standard of songwriting. Berlin had written verses that speak of being in sunny California, but they were cut out, and all that remains is just the chorus, repeated before the optimistic ending. It seems simple, but Berlin's biographer, Lawrence Bergerin, wrote that Berlin struggled with White Christmas because he desperately wanted it to be, quote, simple, universal, and unforgettable, end quote. And I think he succeeded. When it came time for Bing Crosby to hear it, the singer was lukewarm to it. Berlin scoffed at Bing Crosby's analysis of it, saying it was the best song anyone's ever written. But it was okay that Crosby wasn't really in love with it because the original plan was for co-star Marjorie Reynolds to sing it alone as an audition for her job at Bing's Inn. However, no song performance in a Bing Crosby movie would seem right with Bing just watching someone else sing. So the plan changed to making Bing the writer of the song in the film and Reynolds following along as they sing it on Christmas evening. You know, I've written special music for each holiday. This sort of gives me a chance to keep a little promise I made to myself. I said I was going to sing this song at the end tonight. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten and children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. I'm dreaming of a white. 
Christmas With every Christmas card I write May your days be merry and bright And may all your Christmases I'm dreaming of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten Where the treetops glisten And children listen And children Listen to hear, to hear sleigh bells in the snow. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas mm-hmm. with every Christmas card I There's a reprise of the song at the end of the film when Marjorie Reynolds' character Linda becomes a movie star and is filming a performance of the song on a Hollywood set built as a replica of the Holiday Inn. As she sits down to the piano to begin singing, she notices the pipe that Bing Crosby had left on the piano, and he joins in with a whistle before taking over the lyrics and winning the girl he had lost to movie stardom. Another Bing Crosby happy ending. Bells in the snow 
Berlin's Jewish upbringing was obviously not a hindrance to writing White Christmas. The song makes no reference to religious aspects of the holiday, only Christmas cards, sleigh bells, and snow. He showed that secular Christmas songs could do just as well as traditional hymns such as Silent Night, and Berlin was hoping that his masterpiece, as he called it, would knock Jingle Bells off its perch as the definitive secular Christmas song. Like so many popular songs that came before and after it, White Christmas was not an immediate hit. Bing Crosby performed it on the Kraft Music Hall radio show on Christmas Day in 1941 while the movie was being filmed, but nothing really happened with it. He recorded the song for commercial release in May 1942, but studio executives and music publishers were leaning more towards the film's love song, Be Careful, It's My Heart, to be the big song from the film, since love songs do better in music sales, or so they thought. For five weeks, the love song was a chart topter, but then as White Christmas started to become a regular song performed on the USO tour around the world, it gained favor among the soldiers fighting abroad who instantly hooked onto the song's nostalgia. And that was all it took for White Christmas to become the best-selling song of 1942. And here's a big reason why Irving Berlin had reason to smile at his success. Since he owned all the rights to all of his songs, Berlin made a mint off White Christmas in that first year and every year after that. He also made a load of money off Be Careful It's My Heart, too. Given the popularity of White Christmas at a time when Paramount Music Department employees were responsible for picking the studio's Academy Award submission for Best Song, it's no surprise that it was picked. But Be Careful, It's My Heart likely had a good shot at being nominated, as was the July 4 tune, Song of Freedom, which was written just before filming the July 4 sequence as a response to the American entry into World War II just a few weeks earlier. So, folks, those are the nine nominees for the Best Song Academy Award in 1942. Always in my heart, Dearly Beloved, How About You, It Seems I Heard That Song Before, I've Got a Gal in Kalamazoo, Love is a Song, Pennies for Peppino, Pickfoot Pete, There is a Breeze on Lake Louise, and White Christmas. Even just looking at this list, it's clear that 1942 was a pretty good year for movie songs and that's not considering some songs that were not nominated for the Academy Award. Bing Crosby had teamed up with Bob Hope for Road to Morocco, the third road movie with those two fighting for the affections of Dorothy L'Amour. All of the songs in the movie, including the title song, were written by Jimmy Van Heusen and Johnny Burke, who were hitting their stride not only with the road pictures, but in writing for Bing Crosby but their work was never going to beat White Christmas for consideration as Academy Award nominees at Paramount. Could have thought of another way to get us here. Here we go again, Junior. We're off on the road to Morocco. This taxi is tough on the spine. Beats the bus, huh, Junior? Beats me. Where we're we're going? going, why we're going, how can we be sure? I'll lay you eight to five that we meet Dorothy Lamore. <laughs> off on the road to Morocco. Hang on till the end of the line. I hear this country's where they do the dance of the seven bells. 
we tell you more, but we would have the censor on our tails. We certainly do get around. Like Webster's Dictionary, we're Morocco-bound. Jewel Stein and Frank Lesser were left in the cold for a nomination for their song, I Don't Want to Walk Without You, from the movie Sweater Girl. Because Sweater Girl was also a Paramount film, None of the songs stood a chance against anything Irving Berlin wrote for Holiday Inn, even though Irving Berlin himself said he wished he had written the song, I Don't Want to Walk Without You. All our friends keep knocking at the door. They've asked me out a hundred times or more. Within my lonely room Cause I don't want to walk without you, baby Walk without my arm about you, baby The 15th Academy Awards ceremony on March 4, 1943, was devoid of a lot of the glamour that is usually evident, a choice made to respect those fighting in World War II. Even though it should have been ruled ineligible, an instrumental version of Pickfoot Pete was among the selections played for attendees during the dinner portion of the ceremony. When it came time to present the awards, Irving Berlin was the unusual choice as presenter since he was a nominee for Best Song. Only twice before in the history of the Academy Awards had a nominee been asked to announce the winner of a category in which he or she was nominated. Best Actress nominee Norma Shearer presented the award to Marie Dressler for Best Actress in 1931, and in 1937, Walt Disney gave himself the cartoon short subject Oscar. So, when it was time for Berlin to open the envelope containing the winner of the Best Song Award... Imagine his surprise when he saw a white Christmas on the card inside. Before he announced the winner, he cheekily prefaced it by saying the winner was, quote, someone I've known for a good many years. He's a nice kid and I think he deserves it, end quote. With the win, the 54-year-old Irving Berlin checked off the last box of the list and was holding an Academy Award. Well, at least a plaque that he would replace with an actual Oscar statuette in 1946. And as I mentioned earlier, he was raking in the money as the copyright holder for White Christmas, with the revenue for the song keeping him very happy for the rest of his life. In 1989, the year of Berlin's death, White Christmas has sold nearly 40 million copies of Bing Crosby's 1942 recording. That number would escalate to 50 million by the year 2000. 
There has been a lot of debate over whether White Christmas holds the record for the highest-selling record of all time, or whether Elton John's tribute to Princess Diana, Candle in the Wind, is the new title holder. The Guinness Book of World Records has given both songs that title since it's not easy to know officially how many records White Christmas sold in the early days because there was not an official tracking system, until the 1950s at least. In any case, White Christmas has a legacy that has lasted generations and will likely be sung into the next millennium. But here's the conundrum. When you think of the song White Christmas, do you think of the person who is singing it or the man who wrote it? That's what many songwriters of the time faced when their work became celebrated hits. The singer got all the glory, and even though the songwriters raked in the cash, some of them ached for just a hint of the celebrity that the voices got. Irving Berlin was not really one to crave the spotlight, but he knew that he was successful when the calls didn't stop coming for him to write the next White Christmas, or, especially during wartime, the next God Bless America. Paramount also had a sense of pride with the win for White Christmas. It was their third Academy Award win for Best Song after Sweet Leilani and Thanks for the Memory. No other studio could boast three winning songs, not even Musical Happy MGM, which had only two wins. Will the next year's Academy Award winner for Best Song have the same path to fame and glory for its songwriter and its studio? We'll just have to find out on the next episode when World War II continues to invade the Best Song podcast. As always, I hope you had fun singing along with me, and we'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.